Coming to you from an undisclosed location somewhere in Southern California, where it is 114 degrees Fahrenheit outside at noon, this is Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Thanks to all of you who have been listening and have gotten this far in this podcast series. Kudos to you. You are serious about understanding the story of Jesus in Matthew. Also, thanks to all who have taken the time to leave ratings and reviews of this podcast. I can't thank you enough for that. That helps draw more listeners. I've been asked multiple times if the content of this podcast will be put into book form. Well, when I began this podcast, I was not really intending to do that, but now I think that it will be a natural next step once I finish this series. So if you are a publisher or know a publisher, uh, send me an email at subversivewisdom at gmail.com. That's subversivewisdom at gmail.com. I have one book out already that I will mention in this episode. It's really a short book on the Gospel of John called Subversive Wisdom, Sociopolitical Dimensions of John's Gospel, published by Whitfenstock Publishers. That's a book I wrote about 10 years ago and published eight years ago. It was my first foray into getting my analysis of a gospel text out to the public. Whitfenstock is a large publisher of academic and popular texts on the Bible and theology. Because I was an unknown writer, and they knew that the book probably wouldn't sell much, this is a niche market, and sales tend to be very low, even for well-known authors, because I was unknown, and they knew that it would not sell much, they required me to share in the cost of publishing the book, and I ended up losing money on that book. I don't need to make money. No one in the field of biblical studies and theology makes a lot of money off of publishing, But I would like at least not to lose money. So if you are a publisher and like the content of this podcast, contact me. Let's talk. Subversivewisdom at gmail.com. Subversivewisdom at gmail.com. And anyone who's listening who wants to converse with me can use that email as well. You're welcome to do that. In fact, I would very much welcome it. I think I would enjoy it. Some of you, by the way, may have found our Subversive Wisdom website, and I just want to let you know that it is not ready yet as of today, September 6, 2020, when I'm recording this. You can play most of our episodes there now, but it's not up to date. You can read a little of my bio and some recommended reading, but that's about it at this point. We have a tab that says Contact Us. Don't use that. It's not ready yet. The email will go nowhere. So anyway, that's all to say about the Subversive Wisdom website. But you can contact me at subversivewisdom at gmail.com. That works. So let's get into the episode for today. In the last episode, which covered the first half of chapter 11, I argued that Matthew's Jesus wields the power of interpretation in a way that changes the world. He reinterprets Israel's texts and also 
the whole world and the world's conventional wisdom. And he gives that tool of interpretation or reinterpretation to his disciples. This power of interpretation finds its energy in an alternative and subversive wisdom. The name of my first book. Jesus not only teaches this alternative and subversive wisdom, but as we will see in the second half of chapter 11, he becomes that wisdom. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 27 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Interpreting Israel's sacred texts through a powerful alternative wisdom, Matthew shifts into a Jesus as wisdom motif, and Jesus reels off a very peculiar parable. Let's read Matthew eleven, sixteen to nineteen. But to what will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We wailed for you, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Jesus starts out by making a characterization about this generation. That term, this generation, should not be taken to mean everyone alive at that time. That's how we use the term. A generation to us is everyone born within a certain span of years. But that's not how the New Testament uses the term. One of the definitions given by Thayer's Greek lexicon for the Greek word used here is very helpful in understanding the connotation of this word. It defines the Greek word translated as generation It defines it as a race of men or people very like each other in endowments, pursuits, character. A race of men very like each other in endowments, pursuits, character. And that seems to be how the term is often used in the New Testament. Luke 16.8, for example, has Jesus very clearly using this term to designate people not in his movement. In that passage, after telling the parable of the dishonest manager, he makes the statement, For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of the light. The children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of the light. The children of this age or generation are contrasted not with those of the past or the future, but with the children of the light. That's the contrast. The children of this generation and the children of the light. Jesus seems to use the term this generation in the Gospels as a designation for the old society, a society that is still here but is passing away. 
Everyone in the old society is generated, so to speak, by the fathers of that society, whereas in the new society, which nullifies the authority of the fathers of the old society, everyone is a child of one father in heaven and is generated by that father. The new society is a new generation. Jesus characterizes the generation of the old society as children playing in the marketplace. The Greek word for marketplace actually means more than what we think of as a marketplace. It can also mean forum or public place of assembly. It is the name for the place where men from the upper classes argued philosophy in the ancient world. This is probably the connotation that is intended here. Jesus has the children quoting a line from one of Aesop's fables. The line, we played the flute for you and you did not dance, comes from the fable, the fisherman and his flute. Aesop's fables were the type of thing that an ancient philosopher might quote to make a point, but it also sounds like a children's game. Jesus parodies upper-class men in philosophical debate as children playing a game in which they can never agree on anything, which is a stereotype of people who love to engage in philosophical debate, especially men who like to debate philosophically. The target of Jesus' criticism here are the wise men or scribes of that society. The educated elites of the first century Mediterranean world prided themselves in their debating skills. But Jesus unmasks them. They think themselves wise because they love to debate, but really they are more like children playing a silly game and never getting anywhere. Because they are like stubborn children playing a game and are not really interested in the truth or any sort of wisdom that might actually liberate people, they can't accept John or Jesus and use contradictory arguments in their rejection. John is too ascetic, and Jesus isn't ascetic enough. Nothing satisfies them because they aren't really interested in the truth, but are merely playing a game, while common people suffer under the brutal oppression of their class. But John and Jesus are not playing games. They are not merely tossing back and forth intellectual arguments for the fun of it. They proclaim a wisdom that saves lives a wisdom that brings healing and establishes justice. Their works are the true works of wisdom. With the sentence, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds, we get the first of three instances of the use of the word wisdom in Matthew. Not only that, but wisdom here appears to be personified. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. This personification references the extensive passages in Israel's wisdom literature in which wisdom is personified as a woman. Read especially Proverbs 1-9, through where the wisdom of God is a woman who walks the streets of the city and calls out to people to listen to her and learn from her. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus is associated not only with wisdom as a concept, but also with Lady Wisdom herself. 1 Corinthians one twenty four calls Jesus the wisdom of God. Later in this chapter, Jesus will virtually quote Lady Wisdom. 
And, as I argue in that book that I published eight years ago on the Gospel of John, Jesus not only frequently quotes Lady Wisdom, but his whole rather strange portrayal in that Gospel can be explained as a virtual identification with Lady Wisdom. Throughout John's Gospel, Jesus walks and talks like Lady Wisdom, yelling out in the streets, promoting himself, telling people to learn from him, and waxing eloquent in extended philosophical discourses. He behaves in the Gospel of John very much like Lady Wisdom in the book of Proverbs. If you read Proverbs 1, Lady Wisdom calls out in the marketplaces for people to listen to her and learn from her, and when they don't, she pronounces judgment on them. Well, that's exactly what Jesus does next. The old society has not listened so he pronounces judgment. Let's read verses 20 to 24. Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his deeds of power had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable in the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus here riffs off of Isaiah fourteen thirteen to 15 when he says, Will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. Isaiah fourteen thirteen to 15 pronounces judgment on the emperor of Babylon, the analog in Isaiah's time to Caesar. By quoting this passage, Matthew's Jesus implies that the leadership of these villages has thrown their lot in with Caesar refusing to heed the message of the movement. While the movement that John and Jesus have started is a nonviolent movement, Jesus does, at least rhetorically, leave room for the final judgment by God on those who oppress the people. But it seems to be mostly rhetorical, not literal. What I mean is that the images of judgment that Jesus uses in Matthew do not maintain any uniformity but rather vary, and especially in this case, are consistent with how Middle Easterners might express moral outrage. In an earlier episode, I gave an example of how a Middle Easterner might welcome you into his house by saying that the house is yours and that you may burn it down if you wish. But he does not really mean what he is literally saying. I think the same idea may be applied here. The judgment that Jesus pronounces on these towns is not necessarily literal, but primarily an expression of moral outrage. The towns of Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin were mid-sized towns. They were not the main hubs of the upper classes, but from the criticism leveled at them in this chapter, it appears that the dominant households in these towns were affluent enough that they at least identified with the upper classes and engaged in similar leisure activities such as philosophical debates in the marketplaces. So the judgment is primarily on the ruling houses. 
This will become even more clear in the next episode, in which we look at the end of chapter 11, where Jesus virtually speaks the words of Lady Wisdom as the conduit of God's wisdom to the peasantry over against the upper classes, the dominant households of Galilee. So tune in for the next episode for that. But in the interest of time, I'm going to end this episode here. My name is Bert Newton. The music for this podcast series is provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. And this has been episode 27 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.